You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. So we're reading from Mark chapter 9 this morning, starting in verse 14 uh, through verse 29. Let's go to God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great cloud around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he, was, he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Well, as we look at our passage this morning, you're likely drawn to similar things that I'm drawn to just as I read it. A boy possessed by a demonic spirit. He is dangerously convulsed. He's been struggling with this as a boy. The disciples are asked and they attempt to exercise this demon from the child, uh, but they are unable to do it. Jesus steps in. Of course, he's able to do it with great ease. Even just the sight of Jesus, this demon is filled with fear. And then the question that comes to Jesus from the disciples, Jesus Why couldn't we do this? We've done it before. We have exercised demons. We've healed the sick in your name. We tried to do it this time, but it didn't work. And then that strange answer that Jesus gives, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind of answer likely made the disciples just as confused as you and I might be. I mean, how many of you knew that there were different degrees of demonic possession, that there were different degrees of difficulty, that you could exercise some demons with, with mere uh, belief or faith or even um, uh, conjuring up the name of Christ and with great faith, which they were able to do. And this one is a little bit more difficult to get rid of, some harder to resist, some harder to command. The main impression that we get from this passage is that there's two fundamental activities of God's people, faith 
and prayer. We see both activities at work here. We see faith of the disciples. We see faith of this father. We see a a belief, at least in a nominal sense, we see a belief of, of them. But then we also see a rebuke of their certain lack of faith and then ultimately a lack of prayer. The disciples' failure was not that they didn't have faith, but that faith for them was not enough. Now, what do I mean by faith is not enough? I want to be really careful with how I describe this because I understand how it sounds. We're, we're saved, of course, by faith alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in his righteousness alone, but nothing that we can do uh, gives us salvation. No amount of work or character is sufficient for us to be made right with God. And so we depend on faith alone. We are justified by faith. This is true, but what do I mean that faith is not enough? Well, faith can never be put on autopilot. We can't depend on this faith that we have. We believe in God. We believe in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, and then expect that we can coast through life on that information or trust in that information alone for all all of our spiritual challenges that come our way. We can't just trust in Jesus and then expect that that our life of faith, of walking with Christ, will be a, a walk in the park. To put it another way, it's after faith that we need to learn how to walk with Jesus every day by faith. And the harder the task, the more courage is required, the more pursuit of Christ and communion with him we need. Otherwise, our faith, like the disciples here, can function powerlessly and feel empty. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples an important lesson for what it means to walk with him daily and to to fight off temptation. And it's often that we, after we decide to walk with Jesus, it becomes much harder. It's an important lesson that he's teaching them. We remember at the beginning of, of the Gospel of Mark, we even see the second command, actually, that Jesus gives is, follow me, follow me, walk with me, learn from me. And at the time, we saw the great sacrifice that these disciples gave, gave up, the sacrifice that was made in order to, to leave their family, even in a sense, and to leave their profession in a way, to drop everything and to follow Jesus. And we thought, wow, what great sacrifice. But now we learn that the longer they go, the harder it becomes. That was only the beginning. We think that life will get easier the longer we follow Jesus, but it often gets harder. And so we need both a deepening faith and a persistent prayer life. These are fitting words for the church today. We're, today, more than ever, we have become so well equipped with information and instruction of the scriptures and what to believe and great conversation of doctrinal differences and getting to the heart of what does it mean to be a Christian and what does the Bible say. Yet we often feel at times so powerless against spiritual temptation. And so it's not just uh, more information and more apologetics and, and more Bible studies and more life groups and more sermons and more podcasts. The remedy for us and the disciples is to listen carefully to what Jesus has to say to us then and now. We look in our passage and we see three important remedies that are exposed to a faith that at times feels powerless. So there's three remedies here to a a faith that feels powerless. Number one, let's get into it. First, 
We must shift your trust from desired outcomes to Jesus himself. You know, of course, it's not too... It's not too difficult to sympathize very quickly with what the father here is experiencing. He imagined this. He has seen his, his child uh, in a, a life of pain and suffering, uh, even in times of near death. We, maybe he's even disfigured with scar tissue on his skin as he's often thrown into the fire as the demon tries to kill him. And Jesus asks him, how long has this been happening? And the question to this father, allows the father to tell the story, to tell his own story, the difficulty that it's been. He's even been tried to drown him. The demons tried to drown him and burn him alive. He's been near death and he's just suffering. And no one, no one would ever fault the father uh, in what he says next when he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It seems like a, a great faith-forward response and request. It's a perfectly appropriate thing to say, but it reveals something that Jesus draws out of the Father. It reveals our tendency to place our hope in circumstances and desired outcomes rather than a trust in the promise and the word and the nature and character of Jesus Christ himself. We come to God often saying, God, would you, if, if you can change this circumstance, if you could give me this, if you can have compassion on me by showing me that you can change my life, it would help me out so greatly. And even saying this, I don't think that there is a way to humanly avoid this kind of desire. I can't tell you, don't, don't, that's wrong to ask that. Of course, it's just, it's a human desire to say when we are hurting for God to give us comfort. If you have cancer, to ask God to take the cancer away. If your child is sick, to ask God to make your child better. If you are in financial crisis, to ask God to give you financial relief and provision. Of course, these are human and natural requests to God when we are hurting. But what Jesus says next draws us our attention to how this request may not even be enough and definitely not suited well for our circumstance. Jesus simply replies, if you can, if you can. Don't you love that? The father says, if you can do anything, and Jesus replies, I'm sorry, did you say, if I can do anything? Of course, it's implied, of course, Jesus can do anything. He can do whatever he desires. I'm reminded of, of course, uh, being in middle school and raising my hand and saying, teacher, uh, can I go to the bathroom? To which, of course, the teacher replies, I don't know, can you? Is something like this, Jesus is doing a little bit of this. Can is not the question. Can is not the point. Ability is of Christ or ability of us, us to go to the restroom, ability of Christ to, to help this man is, is not the question to ask. What is the question? What is the question that Jesus is exposing from this father that he should be asking? Do you trust that Jesus can and will do all that he desires to do for his glory, for your joy, do you believe that God is good, that he is for you, that he is a God of compassion who loves you, who hears your cries and doesn't turn a deaf ear to your 
needs. You see, if you don't trust in his power, if you don't trust in his character, if you don't trust in his ability to accomplish his plans in you, then, then you're not truly believing. You're not truly worshiping. You're, you're not truly stepping out in faith, in genuine, heartfelt faith. If, you're, if your love for him and trust in him is tied to how he answers your prayer. It's not worship, it's bargaining. It's even in a way demanding of God. If you're only trusting in God to change circumstances in your life, you're, you're really never stepping out in faith. Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes. Let's talk about this important phrase. All things are possible for one who believes. That's a bold claim, one that's often misunderstood by Christians everywhere. And many times it's a verse that's often been taken out of context and used as a magic phrase for all kinds of things in physical healing and, and uh, emotional healing and financial gain. If you just call it out by name, if you proclaim this in faith and have enough belief that God will do it, then he must do it. He is bound to do it. For the scripture says all things are possible for one who believes, right? If someone cries out in faith for God to heal them and they remain sick, then many would say it's because this person's faith was not strong enough. It was too weak. That person wasn't strong enough. For the Bible says all things are possible for the one who believes. If someone is struggling financially and they cry out to God for financial provision and they remain in crisis, it's because they... They have a weakness or an unconfessed sin. Their faith isn't rooted in true belief. But the scripture is simply not a blanket, blanket universal promise that whatever we believe can and will come true. So what does it mean if it doesn't mean that? This father was in the presence of Jesus, the author of faith, and Jesus called him to trust in him. The father had every reason to believe that Jesus had the power to do something for his son, but he wasn't completely sure that he believed enough. Jesus is standing before this man who is struggling, and he is challenging this man face to face. He's challenging him to trust in him, to trust in his good, to trust in his compassion, to trust in his willingness and his ability to give this man all that God desires for him. It means that there are certain things that we must know about Jesus. We do not know if he will heal us of our sickness unless he tells us that he can or that he will. But what we do know is that we have the promise of God to, to sustain us, his nature, his character, his faithfulness. We have the goodness of God in the promises of Jesus Christ. We have the word that is filled with assuring compassion that God loves us and he will never fail us. In this instance, we do see that Jesus is standing face to face with this man and asking him to believe, challenging him to believe that he can and will heal his son. God in his word has not given us the same promise. He hasn't given us his word that he will heal our sickness, not in this life. In the first test of the father's faith, 
is to trust the word and promise of Jesus alone and not the immediate outcome of it. Can I do this? Of course I can do this. Do you trust me? Do you believe in my provision for you? Do you believe merely in the outcome or do you rest in me as one who can do all things? Challenges really in this father is a a misplaced faith. And oftentimes we, we struggle with this same problem. We misplace our faith when we place our hope in outcomes rather than the person and work of Jesus Christ. We place our faith and our hope in desired circumstances, things turning out the way that we hope they will. And the father here in this story cries out for compassion. In our story, the father is called to believe because Jesus told him that his faith was the condition to his son's healing. He often does not tell us to believe in the same outcome for our situation. But what we can be sure of is this, Christ's compassion, his goodness, his presence, his peace, his patience, his eventual total rescue of all that troubles us, and his steadfast love that never gives up. What, the, what, God, what Jesus is inviting this father, this man into, who's crying out for help, is to realize that true faith, true belief is unconditional openness to God. It is laying our hearts and our lives before God at his mercy and saying, I trust you, I believe you, you can do all things and you are good And so my life is in your hands without condition of what you do. It's not placing our trust in a certain outcome, but it's opening up our heart to God and saying, of course you can do anything. I am completely at your mercy. Have compassion on me. Now comes possibly one of the greatest responses in all of Scripture where the Father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. When everyone else was arguing about personal power and ability to do great things and the nuances of why the disciples weren't able to do it now and what power they lacked in this moment, here is the Father confessing not his strength and ability but admitting his weakness. Such an important thing for us to see which reveals our second remedy to a powerless faith. Are you struggling with faith? Then hear this. Prioritize a dependent faith over a flawless faith. Let me tell you this. Every Christian who's hearing this sermon and any sermon has a certain level of genuine saving faith, but that faith is not always consistent, is it? It increases and decreases. It waxes and wanes. It grows it, it, it diminishes at times, even to a small flicker of light. And no matter how strong your faith is in, in your best moment, there are moments when it comes under attack and your faith is challenged and it's weak. And you even may feel at times as, as an unbeliever. But some people would say, I never want to be in a circumstance or in a place in my life where I don't know the right answer. I never want to be in a place when my my faith is weak. I never want to be in a place where I'm challenged 
by sin and give in to sin. I don't ever want to be confused. I never want to doubt. I want to be steadfast. I want to be resolute. I want to be firm. But we can learn a lot from this honest man. His faith was trembling. His faith was imperfect, but it was so real. It was so pure. It starts with a, a strong confession. I do believe. I do believe. But then it's followed by a real and honest admission for where his heart is. And he says, but I don't know everything. And there is such weakness and doubt in my heart. I am so afraid. I am so tempted. Let me explain to you why this is such encouragement to us. Especially when we struggle. You will have questions in your walk with God. You will not know What God is up to at times, you will see him doing something that will completely obliterate the common categories that you have put him into. When something goes wrong in your life, you'll have questions and you'll be easily thrown into doubt. You might think, if I was just a little more faithful, a little bit more cautious, a little bit more well-studied, if I knew my Bible better or prayed harder, then this would have happened. Or you may think that when you have that you have no doubts that you're a man or woman of, of great faith. You know your Bible inside and out. You've studied theology. You have an answer for every claim against Scripture. And then something happens in your life. Something bad, something discouraging. The bottom of your marriage, the bottom of your, of your life falls out and you are spun into chaos. And then you might be tempted to ask God, why would you do this to me after all that I have done for you? You see, a flawless faith will never be able to completely rid ourselves of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. A flawless faith can never change the heart because that's not what faith does. What changes the heart is not a flawless faith, but a dependent faith. Not a neat and tidy, perfect religious posture before God of obedience, but a faith that comes empty and wholly dependent on God. You see, this is the second time in Mark's gospel where we have seen this point made so clearly. Remember the woman with the chronic and and humiliating uh, humiliating hemorrhage of blood in chapter 5? This is a woman who comes desperately to Christ, seeking to just touch him and saying, if I knew that if I just touched the cloak, the hem of your garment, then I would be healed. And when Jesus approaches her, he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't say, look at you, clean yourself up. Come to me dignified. He says to her, your faith has made you well. This is amazing. Her faith was imperfect and juvenile, uninformed, presumptuous, and we could even say superstitious, but it was real and Christ honored her because of her faith that trusted in him. God still treats us this same way today. We do not need to possess a faith that is perfect in order to have a faith that truly holds on to Christ. We do not have to have a faith that is perfect and studied and presumptuous and and neat and tidy to have a faith that saves us and heals us. 
The fact that we can come to Christ with a weak faith doesn't minimize a deep understanding of the things of God, but rather it teaches us something very important about salvation and how one is made clean before God. God doesn't tell us to get right before we come to him. He simply tells us to believe and to trust in him. You see, faith is the instrument. It's the tool that grabs on of Christ. It's the compassion of Christ, the power of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that saves us. Not our faith and our ability to be strong and believing. Our faith is the tool that grabs onto Christ who saves us. Our faith doesn't save. It is Christ who saves. Faith is what holds onto and takes hold of him. Our faith, therefore, doesn't have to be a tight grip. It doesn't have to be mighty. Only Christ has to be mighty. And this is such good news. It means that the kind of faith that pleases God, it's not the kind of faith that belongs to the spiritual elite, but the kind of faith that holds on by any means possible with whatever we have, even when we come admitting that we don't have much. Like this father in our passage who says, there's a lot of things I don't believe. There's a lot of doubt I have. There's a lot of confusion that I am struggling with. But I believe in you. I believe you have what it takes for me and I am in desperate need. That's what the father does and that's why his son is healed. One of the big keys to living the Christian life is to stop pretending that we bring anything worthy of our salvation to God. Too often we as Christians are comfortable pretending. We pretend that we have it all together. We pretend that we're full of faith, that we're rock solid. We pretend that we're not full of sin. To the untrained eye, it might even appear that that these kinds of people don't even require a Savior. That maybe they required a Savior a long time ago and Jesus saved them. And they have been on this trajectory, a vertical trajectory of becoming perfect before God. And and let the gospel be for those who are really struggling because I I feel tight and needy and put together. You're pretending. You are kidding yourself. This is one reason why I love the Father's response in Mark 9. So refreshing, so instructive to us. No pretending, no pretense. Listen, you and I are people who need a Savior, period. You and I are people whose very moment by moment and breath in our loves, lungs and ongoing life hangs by the mercy and grace of God alone and nothing else. The, the mere fact that we receive anything good at all is because of the compassion of Christ. We come to Christ always because we lack completely, exhaustively anything in ourselves that can earn his love. We come lacking, not be, we come to him not because we have something of value. We come to him depending not on ourselves, we come depending on him. We come as beggars asking for his help. Jesus could have said to this man, don't you know who I am? 
Purify your heart, confess your sins, get rid of your doubts, and be certain of me. You still, you have some belief, but you have much to learn. And once you're certain of who I am and what I can do, and no more of this doubting or no more of this confusion, or no more of bargaining with me for for me to change your life, then come to me, and then I'll be ready to give you the gift of healing. Obviously, Jesus doesn't say that. Can you, can you, Sound like the father who says to Jesus, I'm not that faithful. I'm confused. I doubt all the time. I don't have the emotional strength to face the spiritual challenges that I face in my life every single day. But help me. I need you. Help me. Show some compassion on me. This is what saving faith sounds like. Don't be confused about what it means to truly be a Christian in the care of God's love. It means to sound like this. I'm a mess, but I need you and you can help. Faith in Jesus instead of faith in ourselves. This is ultimately the gospel. Author and pastor Tim Keller says this. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us. And if you wait for it, you will never come into the presence of God. You must admit that you are not righteous and that you need help. When you can say that, you're approaching God to worship. This is actually why everything is possible for those who believe. Not because of our righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness. We are loved with a faith, even when our faith is weak, because Jesus' faith never failed. We don't have to have it all together, because Jesus took the punishment for all of our failures on the cross when he died. When we, come, we can come to Christ as impure, doubting, confused people. Because Christ, the pure sacrifice, pure in all his ways, sinless in all of his ways, died a sinner's death for us. He takes our sin so we could take his righteousness. Jesus triumphed over death in his resurrection so that we can come to him weak, admitting that we need him, even after a very untriumphant life. A life of brokenness, a life of failure, a life of sin, a life of making shipwreck of our faith. We can come to him and seek a life of restoration and forgiveness because he died in our place. And invites us to believe that he is enough for us. Ultimately, you see how this dependent, broken, needy faith will ultimately drive us to a persistent prayer. A a persistent prayer life. And this becomes our final remedy we see in our passage for the powerless faith is this. Never attempt to do the work of God without communion with God. Finally, we get to that interesting answer that Jesus gives as to why the disciples could not heal the boy with the demon. In effect, Jesus says to his disciples, you you failed because you didn't have sufficient power. You were using the power that is within you, that you have in your own ability, and you were very confident in it. You did it with great assurance. It wasn't for a lack of assurance or hope. You felt that you were the master of the occasion and it proved unworthy. You thought that you could be successful with what you possessed in yourself. 
but you can't. What you have is never enough. Basically, it was because they tried to do the work of God without a deep communion with God. You'll notice in the gospel stories, the authors would often highlight how Jesus would find a a solitary place. He would seek out uh, an isolated place and he would pray. The gospels even tell us oftentimes he would go and pray for days at a time and even through the night to be with his father, to commune in intimate fellowship with God his father. And these stories of prayer and this answer from Jesus in our passage take us to the the heart of Jesus' secret power. It's an intensely intimate relationship and communion with God as a son to his father. And Jesus is able to carry out his mission, not in the power that dwells uh, within him, but because of his intimate communion with God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that we must do the same, that we are powerless to do the work of God or even to rest in in the joy of God without deep communion with God. But if we're honest, we realize that the practice of solitude and silence and deep communion with God is so foreign to the pace of life that we are used to and often give ourselves to. We don't have time, we say. There's so much going on, we have to be responsible. We're deceived into thinking that real spiritual maturity isn't about deep communion with God, but that it's about our abilities our schooling, our intelligence, our charisma, our personality, our uh, scripture memorization, our niceness, our whatever it is, whatever asset uh, and advantage that you have in your spiritual life, other than a deep communion with Christ, it is these things that you often think, this is what makes you spiritually mature. But it's not. It's about a deep and loving union with Jesus. Jesus says, that's why you couldn't do it. You're attempting to do and express the kingdom of God and the power of God without communion with God. Why do you think you could do this on your own? You can't. And neither can we. We cannot face any of the temptations of life and the pain of living on this side of heaven without a deep communion with Jesus. The core issue with Jesus' disciples is often the same core issue with Christians today. We're simply not pursuing deep communion with God. We easily spend deep communion and more time with a 24-hour news cycle, with podcasts, with talk shows, with keeping ourselves busy with so many different things. And we think this is what makes a person well-equipped to live a life that is faithful to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want us simply to be intellectual giants and filled with biblical facts. He wants us to experience a, a first-hand relationship and fellowship with him. And pa- prayer is about focusing our faith on God. It is focusing our faith in the midst of whatever we're going through and focusing not on a determined outcome that we desire, but focusing our faith in request to God ultimately trusting him with unconditional openness to what he desires to do. 
Both faith and prayer show us that spiritual power over sin in our life is not found in ourselves, but in God alone. So how can we be better moved to pray, to pursue loving union with Christ and deep communion with Christ through prayer? First, we must be convinced that we need it. Do you believe it is a matter of life and death that we are incapable of knowing God without a deep rest and communion with Him, without a first-hand experience of relationship with Him? We must become aware of our desperate need and our helplessness. A man or woman or child who feels proud of their flawless faith will never approach God in true worship because they feel they don't need it. We must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need. We must be equally certain that God can and desires to give us compassion. His hands are full with the pleasures of God and the love of God and the peace of God. And we must come not offering to barter with him with things in our hands, but come empty and asking for his mercy. To fight the temptation of sin and the challenges of our lives, we don't simply need more knowledge or understanding of the Bible or even apologetics or science or technique or even, as Jesus shows us, just faith in what he can do. We need more pleading with God, more trust in God, less pretending, and more desperate prayer.